Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, March 31st, we're studying Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 32. The shame and mockery endured by our Lord grows as he goes to the cross to save us sinners. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Nate Hill. Pastor Hill serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Pastor Apple, it is wonderful to be with you this morning. As we get started, let's talk context. We're in the middle of Mark 15. We've gone through quite a bit of the passion, and yet there's still quite a bit left. What do we need to know going into this text? Well, we are now coming to the point where uh, Jesus is freshly scourged after um, Barabbas being released by Pontius Pilate. That's how the exchange between Christ and Barabbas ends here in Mark. And Christ now is in the middle of his passion. It's in full, full force as he is now lost blood. He has now experienced extreme pain. And we need to have that in mind as we pick up the text today, because I think sometimes we can envision this text when it's just read as its own pericope, as Christ walking in already, just not yet having been affected by these events. But Christ would already have been quite weak and um, and gone through quite a bit by this point in the text. And it helps us understand um, the setup here to what happens in the first half of our text today, which is the way that he's going to be appearing before a large number of Roman soldiers to be first mocked and made fun of, and then also further physically um, mistreated. You, you mentioned the physical mistreatment that has happened to Jesus already and that we're going to see happen in this text. You've seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ? Oh, I have. I, I imagine most of our listeners have seen it too. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a very, if you, if you have seen it, it's very vivid. It, those images stick in your mind. What I find interesting maybe nobody else does, but I think it's interesting is that the gospels. And I think Mark does not deviate from this. Don't really emphasize the physical nature. I think we should have it in our minds, but it's also important to note that the gospels will emphasize a lot more the shame of the cross rather than the physical pain of it. Is there, is there maybe a reason for that? Well, I think there may be a theological reason for that. And then there may be something as I guess I'd say a side effect of, of the text and, and the way our minds work today that causes that to happen as well. The theological reason of course, is that um, sin does need to be punished of course, but part of the consequences of sin is not just a beating from God. It is the shame that sin brings by its very nature in every circumstance. And we've gotten away from a notion of shame in our own culture and, and that makes that aspect of the text maybe harder for us to see and maybe is a reason why we grasp onto the physical a bit. Uh, it's funny you mentioned, I guess we both mentioned the, the verb seeing something in the text. And I think that's why watching the Passion of the Christ movie, which came out when I was, I think, in high school, was such a formative event for me because I'd always found it hard to see the text, right? And especially in Mark where he speaks rapidly and without maybe all of the descriptors that exist in the other gospels. Sometimes we skip over 
putting ourselves in the midst of the scenario. So, yes, we see the physical pain, which has been aided by movie renditions, but we should see the shame as well. And we just live in a culture today where we have a hard time with a written word when everything we've been brought up on has been visual and auditory. So I think what's important for us today as we go through the text is to not just hear, but cause that hearing to to manifest in our mind's eye as we walk with Christ through this experience. Yeah, I think that's really important to be able to to see the text. I think uh, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller once said we should be able to smell the text. Too. Oh, yeah, that's good. That's, that's how well that we should have these things in our minds and in our imaginations. And with the crucifixion particularly, it is something that we might be prone to sanitize. Mm-hmm. It, it's something that, I mean, and just think about if you're, if your church has a crucifix on the altar or anywhere, there's a good chance that Jesus is clothed in the crucifix. As we will see in the text today, he probably wasn't. And, and sometimes we forget the shock, the horror, just the, the extreme violence and complete shame that really is there. And it is helpful for us to be able to picture that so that we get the full sense of what does it mean that we preach Christ crucified? Why would Paul say that's a stumbling block elsewhere? When we picture it in our minds, we start to get a feel for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's true. So let's take a look at the text. We're in Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 16. Again, Jesus has just been scourged and he's now on his way to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. That's the text for today, Mark 15, verses 16 through 32. Pastor Hill, the first scene of the text is this scene inside the governor's headquarters. You've got a bunch of soldiers who start to mock Jesus. Help us into that opening scene. Right. I think many times when we picture this scene, and again, maybe this is because of movie depictions, we picture this as a small group of soldiers, that they're maybe in a small room, six or seven of them making fun of him, beating him. Really, uh, we have the number here for us. It says that they called together the whole battalion, which a battalion in uh, Roman military um, terms is a tenth of a Roman legion. The legion was 6,000 men. The battalion then is 600 men. So again, 
this does help us with this notion of shame. If you just need to beat him and cause him physical pain, well, two or three guys can do the task. But the shame is how many people are witnessing the thing going on. We can relate to this too. If you've done something embarrassing or someone did something to you that embarrassed you, what's worse, two people seeing it or 200? Um, That's why social media bullying is such a big deal these days with children. It's because this sense that now everyone knows and everyone has seen this thing that makes me ashamed. Um, So the number of people here is immense and they're really putting on a show, a, a show for the troops uh, to give them some sort of diversion and joy in the midst of what was probably a kind of mundane day-to-day existence and in their in their work. Mm. Thinking about the number of soldiers that we're talking about, 600, again, that's, that's quite a different picture than I think I usually have in my own mind. And thinking through what Jesus has experienced so far in his passion, it really heightens the sense of his aloneness against everybody else. I mean, think about the night, Monday, Thursday, started with Jesus and the 12. Eventually, they all left him in one way or the other. You have Judas who betrayed him, Peter who denied him, everybody else flees. Jesus is all alone. Meanwhile, the crowd against him starts to grow. First, it's Judas who comes and kisses him, and there's that smaller mob. Then he's taken before the Sanhedrin. He's been put before Pontius Pilate. Now you've got a whole battalion of soldiers. Pretty soon, as we'll see it toward the end of our text, you've got just random people passing by. Anybody who wants to can make fun of it. It really heightens that sense of how alone Jesus is at this moment and how absolutely anyone and everyone stands against him in some way. Exactly. And there's a purpose to this too. I mean, we need many witnesses to these events, don't we? And God has a purpose in having hundreds and hundreds of people witness the death of Christ. Because first off, the way that he suffers and the way that he goes to the cross is a compelling thing because he suffers in silence. He doesn't um, answer all of the charges that are leveled against him. He doesn't lash out in anger. Um, he goes, you know, like that sheep to the slaughter, um, or the sheep for a shearers who is silent. Um, it's an amazing thing. And then these people, it's not unlikely to think that there later on will be converts among them as they understand the full significance of what they, they witnessed on that day in the wake of the resurrection later on, um, how amazing would that have been for those eyewitnesses to go out with that that word? And I think we even see evidence of that here in Mark 15 in our text and in, in the text to come of some of those people who perhaps were among those mockers come to faith because of what they see. That's really going to be more in tomorrow's text, but I think there's evidence of it here as well. I, I suppose to be to be fair, we should also note that, say, in, in Luke, he tells us of women who were mourning along the way. And so there, and we know from John, for example, that, that John, the disciple, and Mary, Jesus' mother, are there. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's not as if absolutely everyone has lost faith, but Jesus does stand alone in his faithfulness, whereas everyone else proves faithless. And I think that's ultimately one of the points of the passion is to see Jesus standing there alone for our sakes. Yeah, to stand firm under true trial is a rare thing. And Christ is the ultimate exemplar of that uh, to us. Now, of course, he's not dying on the cross as an example to us of what we ought to do. But there is a message we can take from that in the midst of a world that sometimes is increasingly hostile to, to the faith and times when it's maybe a little more difficult to be a Christian than it used to be, there will be times that, that we stand alone too, even when there should be people around us that would um, 
would be on our side and, and back us up. It, the thing is, it's an important example to see the way that Christ endures this difficulty in his life as we bear our own crosses in life too. Now, Jesus, in the midst of this battalion, the 600 soldiers there in Pilate's headquarters, they begin to mock him. I think you described it as, you know, they're kind of having fun with him before that some in a, in a sadistic way. Yeah. What are some of the things that they do and, and what's, what's going on in the actual actions that they take against Jesus? Well, the first thing they're going to do is dress him up, right? In order to make a caricature out of him. They, they put a purple cloak upon him. Now they didn't go to Pilate and say, give us your finest robe. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very likely that the purple cloak may have been a part of a, a uniform of one of the soldiers. They, of course, are different colors and different uniforms for different ranks and different different roles. So maybe this is sitting sitting on the throwaway pile in the corner. Um, as they put that purple cloak upon him, um, it goes over his back and the place where he has been scourged. Um, it's, it's a blood-soaked uh, king's robe now. Uh, and then they twist together this crown of thorns and put it upon him. Um, you know, living out where I live in a, a rural area, I used to always think of thorns as those little green briars and things like that, but uh, mesquite trees have big thorns on them too that are inches long. They can actually poke a hole through a truck tire and give you a flat tire on the road. Um, so it's just a really gnarly, nasty thing that they place upon his head there. So not only is it um, a painful, right, but again, it's a mockery. It's it's not a crown of gold. It's not a royal purple robe. It's a a silly approximation for the purpose of making light of the true king of kings and lord of lords. Yeah, those mesquite thorns are no joke. And surely this <laughs> this crown of thorns that is put around our Lord's head is also no joke. The the purple cloak, you know, as you're describing it, Jesus back having been scourged, they put him on it, put hit put that cloak on him for a time. Then when they pull it off, no doubt some scabs have formed and, and the pain and the reopening of those wounds, again, is a, a really big deal. Again, as we're, we're picturing this in our minds, we can just, the, the pain that our Lord is, is feeling, the shame that is being heaped upon him, it all becomes quite, quite evident. Theologically, what's, what's going on here with the purple cloak, the crown of thorns, the ways that they hail him, the, the reed kneeling down, what's going on theologically in this? Well, you know, we have a word for this theologically. It's not really in our lexicon culturally today, but the word is blasphemy, right? Um, It's a making fun and a making light of God. It is a bringing down of the holy from the lofty place that it should have into a realm of of dragging the holy through the dirt, right? It's the fact that we would take something beautiful and make it ugly in, in return. So what they think is all fun and games well, it's, it's ironic in a sense. First off, he is the king of the Jews, isn't he? Um, he's, he's the king of, of all, uh, the king of all creation. But while there's this little bit of truth in what they say, they, they've drug him down to such a level that they've, um, they've made him common. They've taken the holy and made it common. And that's going on in a way that they don't even understand. Um, but theologically, then, what Christ is doing is he is, he is allowing himself to be drugged through the dirt um, in, in a way that we would see as being completely unbecoming of God, right? But isn't that what God does is he gets down into the trenches with us in Christ and even goes places we would never go so that we don't have to go there. 
and that's an aspect of what we see here. So the like he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah fifty three. We see that happening here. Mm-hmm. the The blasphemy that's being heaped upon Jesus by these soldiers, and they don't they don't realize it. Of course, they they see Jesus as just some maybe some crazy guy who's who's got these visions of grandeur, and they're going to show him, look, Jesus, this is this is just a mirage for right. you. This is not real. What's I think what heightens the irony is that these things that they are saying, and you mentioned this, they are true. Mm-hmm. Jesus is the king of the Jews. Jesus does deserve a crown. He does hold a scepter. I mean, these are these are images that we see in the Old Testament. He he deserves to be clothed as royalty. All of these things are true. And he even deserves to be worshiped at this moment, which is, I think, what makes it for us as Christians reading it such a an unusual experience, perhaps, that on the one hand, I mean, I know this happens to me on Good Friday and anytime I read this during the season of Lent, you you cringe when you hear what they've done to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, as you see what Jesus is doing here for you, you can't help but desire to worship him in true faith at the same time. Right, right. And <clears throat> this is uh, an important and instructive thing. I mean, in their in their false actions of, of false worship, it, it should inspire in us an even greater reverence and love for God. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at as well, uh, is that we don't want to make our worship of Christ into something low and um, and blasphemous. I mean, I don't know. I I guess I've got a pretty good stomach for listening to comedy of all varieties. I, I don't know if you listen to comedy, but we we do quite a bit. And there are some things that are maybe risque from time to time, but the thing that really gets me is when a comedian begins to joke about God, right? Because it's a whole different level of of sin, really. Um, and and this should be a reminder to us that we should keep God's name holy, keep our worship of, of Christ pure, and never end up in that place where those Roman soldiers were at that time. Yeah, this is maybe a, a bit of an aside, but what you said there, I think the, the things that we are not willing to tell jokes about are often that's often very revealing as to what our gods are. Yes. Because because what we are willing to joke about probably isn't sacred or holy to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we won't tell jokes about or what we won't tell tolerate jokes about that's probably a good sign that you've got a god there. It's just that that's maybe a bit of an aside. No, that's a good point. Um, but but I, I think yeah it's it's worth I think it's worth pointing out. So with with Jesus here the the thing about you know I mean think about the way we portray Jesus within our churches. We don't shy away from the pictures of him on the cross. We don't shy away from the pictures of of him being crowned with thorns or, or clothed in this way. Some of the most moving Christian art actually does depict Jesus in these ways, which again, just to, to reiterate that point of, of these soldiers mean it as mockery and are committing horrible blasphemy. And yet for us as Christians, we're moved to worship Jesus for the very thing that he's doing here because we know it's for us. Exactly. Anything else there in the, let's see, in in this scene of mockery before we move on to Simon of Cyrene? Well, a couple of other things just real quickly is um, as they're striking his head with a reed, spitting on him, kneeling down in homage to him, um, there's some irony here too. I mean, the fact that they're spitting upon the Lord, which is of course just the most degrading thing that you can imagine is ironic as well, because what did Christ use his own spit for, which is also a weird account in, in the gospels where he heals the blind man with his own spittle. And now 
Um, they're, they're, they're spitting upon him in derision. There's just all of this irony here, and that's one aspect of it too. Um, and then I think one other thing we should talk about in chapter 20, we talked about it a little bit, but they put him in this purple cloak. Now, the strip it off of him, put his own clothes back on him. Again, in front of 600 men, he's being rendered nude and, and reclothed. And again, this is more of that shame. Um, nakedness in the Old Testament is, is something that's forbidden and seen as a mark of great shame because what is it with Noah and his sons? Um, Noah is, is rendered drunk or he gets himself drunk and ends up uh, appearing naked before his children. And what we might think isn't that big of a deal turns into a huge deal in the Old Testament. So we shouldn't lose out on that either, that that's an aspect of his is a shame here. Right. And and that goes back to what we were saying earlier about the way that the gospel writers give us this. And Mark is no exception that they do emphasize that shame. And and even, even for, for us today, you know, which, which would you rather experience the, the beating that Jesus got or the being spat upon and being stripped in front of others. I mean, it's, it's the latter. It's the, it's the shame that that's what the, you know, those dreams that you wake up from in, in horror, that's the, those are the ones where you're being just utterly humiliated. Right. And I mean, you know, would it, would I rather my enemy hit me in the face or spit upon me? Mm-hmm. I, I think, I think when we stop and think about it, oh, I'd, I'd rather him just hit me. It would right. be a lot more humiliating to be spat upon. Yeah. Every, everyone has had the bad dream of being in school and you look down and you're in your underwear. Right. Right. But it's not the archetypical dream that you're in school and then someone beats you up in class. Right. 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 Yeah. So, I mean, all of this emphasizes this, this shame that is just heaped upon him, adding insult to injury. This is, I mean, this is a classic example of that saying, this is what our Lord goes through for our sakes to win our salvation. Now, the battalion, all 600 of these men, they've had their fun with Jesus. Now it's time to get on with the job. They lead Jesus out to crucify him. And then we encounter one of these minor characters in the gospels. Mm -hmm. You have these major characters, Jesus, Peter, James, John, the 12, but you get these minor figures throughout. Simon of Cyrene is one of them. Got a few minutes here before the break. Let's talk a little bit about, before we actually talk about what Simon does, let's just talk about what the text tells us about him here in verse 21 and why that might be important. Yeah, exactly. Um, First off, the text would not sound odd to us if it just said they compelled a passerby who was coming in from the country. Um, We get his name, and we get his name and his place of origin. Um, Cyrene is in Libya, modern-day Libya on the North African coast, and we can deduce pretty simply that he had come to Jerusalem for the festival, uh, for the feast, and that um, he would then, of course, go back to his own homeland. So this is important to us because we know here's another witness of these events who will go to a whole other continent to bring back word of what had happened there. Now, Simon didn't volunteer for this, right? He was compelled for his task. Um, but in hindsight, isn't that an amazing honor that he would have had to share the Lord's burden in his time of need? Um, the fact then also that we have two other names associated with him, which are his two children, Alexander and Rufus, reminds us of the fact that as the gospel of Mark is, is beginning to circulate or be read publicly, uh, Alexander and Rufus are likely still living or are at least in the living memory of the hearers of the text. 
So this is very clearly a marker in the text that this is not a fable being told. We're not being told a story. We're being given specific names of specific people who are known to the original hearers in order to get us away from this notion that the Gospels are meant to be understood metaphorically or mythologically, but instead that Christ himself truly is a historic figure. Uh, he really is the meeting of, of God and man in history. Um, even a, a secular um, philosopher who I had listened to the other day uh, had said that in Christ, and this was not someone who even believes in Christ, he's saying the amazing thing is you have the physical meeting the narrative, right? The, the idea part of religion meeting the physical world that we're in. And even as a non-Christian, he could observe what an amazing thing that was. So um, this just lets us know very clearly how Mark wants us to understand this. And you could have gone and talked to Alexander and Rufus those days and said, tell me what your dad told you about that day and what an amazing thing that would have been. Yeah. I mean, that that's just an incredible thing. Uh, you know, in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, Paul tells the church in Rome to greet Rufus, which mm-hmm. very likely could be the same guy. I mean, neither of these names were terribly uncommon, right? but- I mean, we should bring him back. Well, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. We'll start. <laughs> start with the Rufus. <laughs> Alexander and Rufus. Alexander is still still yeah. pretty common. <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, to to emphasize that point, these are these are people you could have gone and talked to. That's that's pretty incredible. And and perhaps people, you know, if if Mark is writing in Rome or to a church in Rome, the mention of the name Rufus here is pretty significant. And and I think with with Simon of Cyrene, you get these details about him particularly. This could be someone that was, as we were saying earlier, converted based on what he witnesses and experiences here with Jesus. It would be a surprise to me if he wasn't, to be quite honest. Um, this is happening under the direction of the, the Spirit, too. So not only uh, is, is the name of the sons important, but the name of the Father probably is, too. He may well have been known to his community in North Africa. Mm. So we're going to pick up more with Simon of Cyrene on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, talking about Mark 15 with Pastor Nate Hill. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, March 31st. We're studying Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 32. We have Pastor Nate Hill with us. He serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, prior to the break, we were talking about Simon of Cyrene. Mark adds this historical detail of who Simon is, who his sons are, men who are probably known to the church in Rome, perhaps other Christians throughout the Roman Empire as well. Let's talk a little bit about what Simon actually does. They compel him as a passerby to carry his cross. What should we be picturing as Simon is carrying Jesus' cross? Well, there are two options of what this would have looked like just to the to the eye. Um, 
Oftentimes when we think of a cross, we think of the standard Christian cross shape with an upright and then a cross piece that's down a little bit, leaving room up above. That's probably the accurate way that the cross was configured, especially because there's a sign above Christ's head. It had to go somewhere. The other possibility, though, is that perhaps this would have just been the horizontal cross piece if the vertical pieces were in their own place that would essentially would then be set upon the vertical um, spot when you got there. Either way, this is a very heavy thing to carry. It was likely a hundred pounds if it was even just the crossbar. And Jesus um, physically is weak at this point and they need to get on with the show. So they pick Simon out of the crowd um, and and here he comes to, to pick up this burden, not really of his own choosing. And, and now he's bearing it and placed in the middle of quite a spectacle, too. Um, what a surprise. He didn't know That's he was right. in for that That's uh, right. when he yeah. woke up that morning. Right. And I mean, it, this isn't the kind of thing that Simon would have been able to really say, no, thanks. I don't want to do that. Right. <laughs> we, we've already seen what Roman soldiers, what kind of persuasive techniques they have. And so Simon really doesn't have an option here but to carry this burden that has been laid upon him. So physically, that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. Theologically, we've heard Jesus in this gospel tell his disciples that to be a disciple means to pick up a cross and follow him. Does what happens with Simon here provide some commentary on what Jesus says? Well, of course, yeah. And this brings us back to uh, what came up fairly recently in the lectionary. Uh, reading from uh, Mark 8, where Jesus is foretelling his death and his resurrection. And remember, it's not, I think, until Mark 11 that uh, the triumphal entry happens. So this is before any of this takes place. And Jesus at that time tells his disciples that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And I always observe in a Bible study that what is their frame of reference at that point that Jesus is talking about? Take up the the instrument of, of death in the Roman Empire and follow me. And Jesus, of course, knows what's coming next. And in our hearing after the fact, it makes perfect sense. But Jesus was readying the disciples even then when they were misunderstanding his ministry as being a thing that would lead to their own glory as saying, this is a necessary part of following me is that you will take up a a metaphorical cross. Actually, some would take up a physical cross, most likely. Um, and then you will have to follow the path of suffering that I've suffered. And that happens to us today, too. This is an important thing that we understand as Lutherans is there is a, a difference in what we would call the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. Now, theology of glory seeks always to find a personal benefit to me that happens because of a transaction that I enter into with God. So I keep the rules and God will bless me. That's a theology of glory. The theology of the cross is is a more mature understanding of what it means to be a Christian. It's, it's to say uh, that no servant is above his master. And if Christ's pattern of life was one of self-sacrifice and love that took him all the way to the cross, we shouldn't be surprised as Christians when we bear some kind of burden that we didn't ask for, that's difficult for us, but what are we to do? It's to persevere in that moment, to look to uh, what Christ has already done for us in walking that path and find strength in it, and ultimately to use even the bearing of our own crosses for the glory of God. And Simon, I suppose, is the the first of the cross bearers in this sense. Yeah, again, one of those minor characters. Think about how 
Peter previously could have picked up a cross, again, more metaphorically, although had he connected himself with Jesus back in chapter 14, he very well might be on the road to Golgotha with Mm -hmm. Jesus. Peter refused. Here you have Simon of Cyrene, of all people, being the cross bearer behind Jesus, following that role of disciple. He probably became a disciple later, setting that example for us. And, And as you said, you know, crosses aren't something that we get to choose. We don't get to choose how we are afflicted for the sake of the faith. Simon didn't get to choose his. And yet, seeing where our Lord has gone, that does enable us to suffer with joy, as the New Testament writers will say. Yeah, and maybe you've had this experience like I've had, where I've seen on a couple occasions a healthcare worker, back when we could get into the hospitals, a healthcare worker who would be moved by the way that one of my parishioners was dealing with their illness. Many times, you know, it might be a terminal illness or one that involved a great amount of, of pain and toil. Um, one time I was visiting a church member in a hospital and um, I remember this particular nurse and she was just kind of intrigued by what was going on there. And later on, I ended up adjunct teaching a religion class at Concordia University in Austin, and she ended up in the class, and I remembered her. And we talked about it afterwards, and she remembered the member of my church, and she said, well, I just didn't understand how he could be so joyful and happy in the midst of what he was going through. And, and it wasn't just a empty happiness. It was, it was the type of deep joy that caused him to witness to this person and, and speak of the hope that he had even in the midst of trials. And that's really kind of one of the main purposes of cross-bearing is, is that it shows forth a, an abiding trust in the Lord that you can't find anywhere else. From what I know of the martyrs' stories that you get from the early church, that was often a common theme, was that those who had captured and were executing the martyrs would be moved by the way that the martyrs died with faith in, in Christ. And, and similarly today, as we suffer in hope. You know, I think of those verses from Romans 5 where, where Paul talks about how suffering just builds and builds and ultimately produces in us hope. And that hope, it, it is seen by others. And what a fantastic witness. Much like, as you said, you know, the church in Rome could have gone and said, hey, Rufus, what happened with your dad? Tell us about him. And, and that same witness could have been given. Mm-hmm. Jesus continues then, Simon carrying the cross. They go to a just a wonderful sounding place, Golgotha, place of the skull. That's a a nice place, it seems. And they offer Jesus wine mixed with myrrh. Now, he does not take this. Everything we've seen from Jesus so far, he's willingly received suffering. Here he is offered something, but he does not take it. What's going on with the wine, and why doesn't Jesus take it? Right. We don't want to get um, confused here that this is like the, the sour wine that he's offered you know, on the cross. It, the, the issue, this is actually a accommodation that they're giving to Jesus. In the same way, back in the Civil War, you know, they'd amputate a leg and they'd give the guy a big swig of whiskey before they started cutting. I mean, the idea is to numb the pain. And this is one of the small acts of of mercy that they show to him as a condemned man. So in, in the same way that we have these small mercy traditions in our own society where a condemned to death criminal will have whatever he wants for his last meal, they do extend to him this courtesy of saying, you're about to go through this terrible ordeal. Let's let's give you some wine and the myrrh actually, which of course we think back to the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. The myrrh had narcotic qualities to it that would have numbed the pain. Now, he doesn't take it, right? Because he is about to go and perform 
the priestly function of all priestly functions of the entire scriptures. He is about to go be uh, the sacrifice and the, the great high priest for all, all eternity. And while he would have no problem having wine in other contexts here before he goes and does this important duty, he wants to be 100% present and focused upon what he's doing there as he bears the sins of the world. And as he is suspended there on the cross, as he advocates for us sinners to his father as he bears those sins. So Jesus will not go drunk exactly. into his I mean, suffering. No, I... Um, I don't know about you, but uh, I don't mind a glass of wine after church, but I'm not going to have one before. Um, there's a time for everything. And Jesus uh, is not not going to be taken away from his task. Right. He's going to, and in so doing, he does experience the full wrath of God. By not drinking from this cup, he will drink fully from the cup that is God's wrath for humanity. He's not mm-hmm. going to do this half-heartedly or, or somehow duped into it because he didn't have his wits about him. Exactly. Jesus knows what's going to happen, and he does so willingly and fully for our sakes. He's 100% in control through this whole yes. process. Yes, and we've, I mean, we've seen that throughout, and so this not taking the wine fits in perfectly with that. Now, verses 24 and 25 describe the actual crucifixion. This is where Mark tells us they crucified him. They did so dividing his garments. Here is where we, we see that Jesus was likely completely naked when right. he was crucified. They cast lots for them. And Mark gives us the detail. It was the third hour when this happened. Right, right. So, so we understand that the third hour would have been the third hour after the sun had risen. The sun rises approximately six o'clock, give or take. So it's probably about 9 a.m. early in the day. Um, the phrase, and they crucified him is a very straightforward thing, but we are not as familiar today with that, that mode of dying. Um, and I'm sure many of the listeners know this already, but the manner that crucifixion would have worked is you would have been suspended from a cross by your hands and your feet. Now, by hands, um, it doesn't just mean kind of from the wrist forward to the end of your fingers. The The term there can in, encompass some of the forearm as well. So they likely went through the wrist behind the bone um, that, that would have given a more secure anchor point that wouldn't tear or rip. Um, and the feet would be placed most likely one on top of each other and and driven a uh, nail through. And, you know, the manner of death in crucifixion is not the fact that you bleed so much that you die. And it's not, um, not that at all. It's the fact that you have to push against your feet to raise up to get a breath. The pain is so excruciating, you let off of your feet, and the pain goes to your wrist, and it's a cycle over and over until you essentially almost drown in your own um, fluids that build up in the lungs. So, um, you know, I know a lot of people know that already, and I know a lot of people um, have, have seen, seen the movie, right? But it's important for us to keep in mind just what that means, because as important as it is for us to keep Christ on the cross at the center of our theology, it's important to us to understand that we don't just sanitize it and turn it into artistry all the time, too. Um, right. I mean, and, and for, for Mark to, to write so plainly, they crucified him. Uh, maybe for our minds today, the something that would have provided perhaps a similar shock would be, well, pardon the pun, they electrocuted him. Right. They stuck him in the electric chair. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of, I mean, this is capital punishment that we're talking about, reserved for the worst of the worst. And in 
the Roman days, unlike our day, they weren't concerned about that being humane. Mm-hmm. They would have rather it been as torturous as possible, as you've described. And this is not, generally speaking, a very quick process. No. The, the no. process of death by crucifixion would have been very lengthy. This could go on for days. Um, and, and someone could languish and, you know, the idea of, you know, breaking the legs of the crucified, well, that's just essentially so the Roman soldiers can go home, right? Um, at some point let's get on with it and let's get out of here. Um, and that's why that was a practice there because if you didn't, some people would persist in that state, uh, for quite some time. Right. So this is not a pretty picture. Now you mentioned earlier, one of the reasons that it's likely that the cross that Jesus is hung upon is what we often picture as, you know, that lowercase T shape is there's a sign above him, the King of the Jews. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So again, this is an example of irony or a lot of things are at play here. First off, they are saying something that is true, not realizing it is true. That's the ironic part. Um, the other part that's going on here too, is that Pilate sort of got um, manipulated in this process earlier on, right? Pilate didn't really want to put Jesus to death. He knew he wasn't really guilty of anything, but the, the Jewish officials know that Pilate is on thin ice with Rome and, you know, they, they threaten him and manipulate him. And I think this is Pilate kind of getting back at them again a little bit. So Pilate is going to say, fine, you know, you, you think, you can call the shots and maybe you got the best of me and manipulated me here. Well, here's your king yeah. and, and look what I've done to him. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he's putting him back in, in their place. Now, so it functions on that level. It also functions on the level of mockery again, too. And we see that that's exactly the function it has for the people who pass by him. And again, it says passed by him. Crucifixion was done in a public place mm-hmm. so that people would see this on their way to work, mm-hmm. um, on their way home. Um, and, and people aren't just going to walk by and, and say, isn't this sad or isn't this tragic? They're going to stop and, you know, rub salt in the wound, so to speak. Um, that, that's a pretty amazing thing that we see there, too. Yeah, I mean, the, for the people passing by, the sign would have also, I think, functioned, if you're a, a Roman governor, say, if you see that sign and you see what's happening to this guy, the effect is supposed to be, don't do what he did so you don't end up like him. Exactly. So, but for us as, as Christians, again, when we see the sign above Jesus on the cross, the King of the Jews, or as, as it'll often be depicted in art, I-N-R-I, those are the Latin, mm-hmm. those are Latin for Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. We should rightly recognize Jesus as our King precisely on the cross. This is, what, this is why Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. We are not ashamed that Jesus shows himself to be king on the cross, but in fact, we worship him precisely because that's where he was. Right. So um, most of the listeners are probably most familiar with this aspect in the way we talk about the creed and the catechism, right? In the second article, we talk about Christ's state of humiliation and exaltation. It's this fact that his humble humiliation happens as he begins to take human flesh. And it's like stair steps down into this process. And then his exaltation on the other hand um, results finally when he's seated at the right hand of God. But where's the turning point, right? You would think that the first part of his exaltation is the empty tomb, but it's not. It's not theologically speaking. The first part of his exaltation is the cross where he's enthroned here. Um, so his glory, in a sense, is his cross. His throne is the cross. And what looks to the world as the bottom that, that he could possibly, that he's hit rock bottom in his life and in his ministry, and it's all over now, 
what you can't see with the naked eye is that this is where the turn has has happened or is happening right now, that he has come exactly for this moment and for this instant. Mm, right. I mean, catechetically speaking, the cross is a part of Jesus' humiliation in the sense that when you look at him there, you don't see that he is God. Right. When you look at him there, he he sets aside the divine ability that he has so that he stays there precisely to save you and me. And yet the scriptures are very clear. Jesus talks about this as his hour of glory. This right. as his exaltation. It's it's especially present in the Gospel of John where Jesus talks about how he is lifted up and he draws all men to himself. But it's also present in the Gospel of Mark, and that becomes evident in the very next verse where Mark reminds us that with Jesus, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And and we might remember that back in Mark chapter 10, two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, asked to be seated with Jesus in his glory, one on his right, one on his left. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking for, and those two places are reserved for two other people seems like Mark's telling us, here's those two people. Right, exactly. It's where Jesus says, you know, are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And um, he also says there that um, it's not not for them, it's for, for those for whom it has been prepared, right? So that these two specific people are supposed to be there um, on Jesus' right and on his left. Um, you know, since we're talking about them, the the last words of our section today says that those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And I like that aspect in Mark because Mark doesn't give us the details about the one who continues to, to mock Christ and, and speak poorly of him and the other who says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Mark doesn't give us that aspect, but by leaving it here, it also shows that both of them at, at a certain point were of the same mind. Um, and the heart of one is turned in faith towards Jesus and the heart of the other isn't. So it's not as if the one guy was a good guy, the other guy was a bad guy. And that's why one gets mercy from Christ and one doesn't. They're both equally guilty and condemned of just crimes and also guilty initially of of mockery and derision towards Christ. Yet that doesn't leave the one beyond grace. Um, Right. I mean, and, and that that account is given in Luke. And mm-hmm. there's another wonderful example of someone at this scene who is brought to faith by what he experiences here from Jesus and what he hears from Jesus right here. But as you said in Mark, I think it again highlights just how alone Jesus is at this moment. We've had the whole soldiers, uh, the whole battalion, 600 men, now everybody who's walking by, and even even two people who ought to have been sympathetic to Jesus. I mean, imagine the the two people on the cross, they're making fun of the other guy on the cross. <laughs> right. I mean, talk, talk about self-justification right there. You know, I'll do anything, even mock the guy who's, who's here innocently in order to make myself feel better to somehow earn something for myself. It's just a, again, Jesus is all alone in this, but he's doing it for you and for me. The, the other main thing here at the end of the text, because we actually get some of the words of mockery here, those who passed by derided Jesus and they say to Jesus, they kind of laugh, ha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it. So show us, save, save yourself, the chief priests and scribes. And of course we know how, how they've been acting toward Jesus all along. They pile on. He saved others. Can't save himself. Let him come down and we'll see and believe. Take us into these words of mockery we get. 
Yeah, so I, I love this phrase, wagging their heads, yeah. right? <laughs> what does that mean? I, I guess that just means kind of hanging their head and, and, and looking at, look at the futility of this. Mm. You said you could tear down the temple and rebuild it. You can't even get yourself off of a cross. Of course, they don't realize that the temple is his flesh and they're, they're witnessing this very thing in the act. Um, but they're saying you, you claim to come in power and now you stand in weakness. Uh, and that's the verdict upon you and what you have tried to teach the people. Um, now, this is interesting, though, what the chief priests and scribes say to him. This quote strikes me funny. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Now, I, I don't know. Are they granting the fact that he did indeed save others? Or are they saying he saved others? He can't even save himself. I don't know. How have you read that? Well, it's it's interesting that you bring that up because I think it goes hand in hand with what, what they continue to say, particularly where they say, we want you to come down from the cross so that we can see and believe. And and the reality is with, with this, he saved others. They have seen Jesus do a lot of very miraculous things. One of the, mm-hmm. the earliest ones that comes to mind is is back in Mark chapter three, where there's this conflict on the Sabbath. And Jesus brings it to him and says, is it right to heal someone on the Sabbath? And he does. Mm -hmm. And their response right then and there is to already begin to plot to destroy him. So they, they have seen him save others. They have seen already, and yet they have not believed. Why would they think here that if they see they will believe The the reality is that they won't. And I think that's one of the points that Mark wants us to get is that seeing doesn't lead to believing. Believing comes first and then you see. Right. And indeed, sometimes the pledge that if I see, I will believe yeah. is an empty pledge too. Um, and this may just be the way I've always read it or heard it in in my mind that, you know, uh, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. I, I hear so much sarcasm in that phrase, the way it hits my ears. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think he could have come down from the cross and they wouldn't have seen and believed to be quite honest with yeah. you. Um, in the same way that today so many people say, well, I'll believe in God as soon as he uh, you know, shows up on my doorstep. Well, God has shown up on the doorstep of, of humanity in Christ, and, and not even that does the trick. Right. And I mean, that, this is ultimately, why doesn't Jesus come down? Because he, he doesn't want you to believe because he comes down from the cross. He mm-hmm. wants you to believe because he stays there for you. And I mean, there, there's so much here, you know, this is really the temptation of, of Satan coming back at Jesus to forsake the cross. Think about, again, what you mentioned Mark chapter eight earlier, right before Jesus tells his disciples that they're going to pick up a cross and follow him. Peter says to Jesus, you're nuts for talking about going to the cross. That's not going to happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Right. This is Satan's temptation coming back at Jesus one last time, trying to get him down from the cross to forsake the salvation of sinners, Jesus won't do it. I mean, this is, it's it's just a fantastic moment. Yeah. Yeah. The task that Satan has at hand is to, to get Christ off of his own task, right? Ultimately did, you know, Satan didn't need Christ to bow down and worship him. Really. He just needed him to forsake the cross as you're saying. And um, that's the one thing Christ will not do. He, he won't bring himself down from there um, because the payment once and for all, for all, all time is about to be made here. 
in his blood, um, the central event of all human history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so Jesus stays on the cross. We'll see how his actual death unfolds in the next text. We've got about three minutes here, Pastor Hill, to to do some final reflections on what we've seen, what we've heard from this text. It It's almost so familiar that it's easy just to gloss it over. I know Jesus died. I know Jesus suffered. How, how do we as Christians take a text like this, particularly as we are in Holy Week? What is the, the proper salutary use of a text like this that strengthens us in our faith in Christ? You know, there are a million salutary and helpful things to take from the text, but I think maybe one thing that I'd like to reflect upon is, yes, Jesus died there, but who is Jesus and, and why is he significant? Um, we think a lot at the incarnation about who Jesus is, that he's God and man, that he's the divine and human flesh. Well, that's a wonderful thing. It's an important thing to understand um, dogmatically, doctrinally. But this is where it comes to a head as being so necessary for our salvation. Um, as Jesus hangs on the cross, suspended between God, his Father in heaven, and every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth that has lived, was living, and ever will live, he's there as this great intermediary um, between God and man. But he's more than an intermediary because he truly is both in, in their entirety. And, and that's why it's important for us to understand that as Christ goes there, he is the only one who could have ever done the thing that Christ does. The only one who is so divine that the sacrifice will be infinitely valuable and applicable to all. And the one who is also fully human so that he could share in all of our temptations, never falling to one, understand the fullness of humanity and experience it, and also be capable, for lack of a better word, of of dying, right? That's the question you always get is, so when Jesus died, did, did God die there, or was it just the human part, or how does that work? Well, that's the point, is you can't pull, the, you can't pull Christ apart in such a way. Um, he did it because he was the only man for the job, the only God for the job in that sense, right? Um, that, that we just see here this one time where God and man have come together in Christ, and, and this is the moment that it was always intended for. Yeah, because Christ is God and man, his death means salvation for you, for me, for all. Pastor Nate Hill is the pastor at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas, helping us this morning with Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 32. Pastor Hill, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Mark chapter 15 or any of the gospel according to St. Mark, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We love to hear from you. Thanks for listening this morning. Talk to you again tomorrow.